Hello. Hello. Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Sarah Black. And I'm Jeffrey Lilly. And we are returning to the Putnams today. Putnams part two. P-P-2? Sure. Sure. P-P-2. <laughs> Not the, very catchy, but it, it'll do. <laughs> we could be like the Putnam problem part two. Oh, I like, see, there we go. There we go. The Putnam problem part two. But first, uh, should we do a little recap of this weekend? I was I was going to say we should probably talk uh, talk this weekend. And uh, I also wanted to talk Spotify. 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 Oh, Spotify wrapped. That was... Don't you remember it happened last year, too? I, I, don't, I, for, I forgot. I don't remember as much last year. Maybe, you know what? Your Instagram got taken down yeah. last... November 6th. So that's why. Oh, uh, okay. Because you didn't have... You weren't getting it. And we hadn't gotten the new Instagram yet? No, not yet. Oh, uh, okay. So, like, I got... I saw things on my personal right, page. Right, right. But, yeah. So this is the first time you got to really experience it. I had totally forgotten. So thank you to everyone who uh, listened to <sighs> us enough to land us on your Spotify wrapped. It was I don't, awesome. I don't even know. Thank you so much, like, guys. genuinely humbled. That was... Uh, Guys, you humbled Jeffrey. It was just so cool. And to see a oh, top one, top zero one, like the hours that, that you've listened, they appreciate. Thank and you. the fact that they were excited to share that with us. Like, right? Oh my gosh. It, yeah. Cloud nine, the whole day. Yeah. I think we have the most awesome listeners. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. Better than any other podcast, <laughs> although I'm sure there's some crossover. So. Yeah. <laughs> but also to see where we landed on some people's lists. And above some other podcasts. I know. I was like, what? Like the fact that we were above Morbid on someone's podcast. I, I wasn't going to like, say it. I was like, damn, that felt good. Especially because yeah. they put out like three episodes a week. So, or two episodes a week. So yeah, definitely warmed our dark hearts. Thank so, you guys again. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for that. And uh, keep listening. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, but also we had a pretty cool weekend here in Salem. We did. I think this might be my favorite December weekend. Sure. I mean, they're all going to be fun, but this. Yeah. Do you remember two, three weeks ago, the episode on the common, we sort of did that in preparation, you know, timing wise for the house tours of the common. It's called A Christmas in Salem. It's put on by Historic Salem. And is it in their 44th year? Was I think it? that sounds right. 40, it's, it's definitely some 40-something, but yeah. they've been doing it for decades at this point. And every year, they choose a different neighborhood in Salem. And I'd say about a ten, I think it was 10. 10 houses yeah. uh, are opened up to the public. And bonus, they're decorated for the holiday. Yeah. So, and they like go a step further. They're not just decorated, but they're themes and there are people playing instruments and sometimes like caroling inside these homes. It's really a cool experience. They're just people's homes who live in uh, neat, interesting, historic homes in Salem. And we get a little glimpse into the architecture of the house, uh, the layout of the house, the history of the house, as well as the people who live there, their lives, and, and how they decorate. And it was super cool. So last year, we were in North Salem mm-hmm. over in the Leslie's Retreat area. Yep, yep. And that was cool. Yeah. Really yeah. cool houses. We had a wide range and some more modern homes. But I think this one, oh, man, to go into 
the old mansions of these wealthy merchants that would have graced the streets of Salem during the Great Age of Sale, probably rubbed shoulders with Elias Haskett Derby. Some of them for sure. You know he walked into some of these houses. Wait, no. Is that? Nope. I think those might be. Maybe one. Because they're all past his death. Daniels. I was going to say that. Yes, the Daniels house, the oldest one on the house tour. Yeah, but most of them did pop up after. So his son, his son had a a hand in leveling the commons. So he definitely would have been spending some time in those micro mansions. Do you do you have a favorite? Oh, I honestly think the Daniels house was my favorite. I don't know if that uh, I'm a little biased because I've been meaning to get into that place (laughs) for at least a year or two. Uh, But I used to live in that neighborhood and I used to pass by the Daniels house pretty much every walk to work. And that red door, I've been meaning to get into that place. So they do they do tours, which I I will admit we've both been negligent of uh, of of attending. And uh, that's. Definitely higher on, I mean, we... It was already high on the list. Yeah. It would be really cool to do like maybe a virtual live show or something there. And or we got to talk to the owners yes, of the Daniels house. Definitely a sit down interview yeah. inside, but it was really cool to see in person. And the fact that it is not only an inn, like an Airbnb, mm-hmm. they do a, a combination of the two, but they also live there. Yeah. The yeah. owners are living in the same house. So can you imagine growing up as a child, because they have two children... Yep. In a home that was most of it or a good portion of it was built during the 1660s. The 1660s. Incredible. And uh, it's been an inn for the better part of of 40 or so years. Uh, And I guess the owners found it, and I don't want to give too much away because we're going to talk to them, uh, on Zillow in 2017 and uh, then became the proprietors of it. And they've also recently purchased an adjacent property, they're calling it the Silsby yep. House. Yep. So now uh, even more rooms and more space, uh, kind of like the Salem Inn does. I was just going to say, this yeah. is what the Salem Inn does. They have several properties all in close proximity. But so, that used to be a barn for the, the yeah, original yeah. property. So they are now joining those two properties back together. It's uh, It was really neat. That was, that was a cool one. But uh, I think my favorite has to be... Um, the Henry Russell Jr. House. Oh, that was so good. <laughs> is that the one on Brown Street? That is 6 Brown Street. They also have an Airbnb. So perhaps some of you have even stayed in either one of these locations. Uh, and that one is actually the current resident of uh, a gentleman, Ty Hapworth, whose Instagram is... Hello Salem. And he is a Salem City Councilor at large. Yes, he is. The house itself was built and designed by... Brick Mason. So this is probably my coolest, (laughs) like, fun fact that I learned on Uh the tour. I can't remember the guy's name. He not only designed that home, but he also designed some pretty, like, large buildings, like, heavily used buildings here in Salem. You may recognize some of them. What now houses the Salem Witch Museum. Yep. Once was a church. Uh, those towers on either side actually used to extend significantly higher than you see today, as well as the Immaculate Conception Church, which I believe is on Federal Street. Sure. Have you seen it? I don't know. Yes, I don't know where. If you were walking to the Yellow Elephant House at the end of Federal yes, Street, the, the, you the, pass the big, it on your right hand side. Abandoned. No, it's still operational. Okay, okay. So that- my roommate used to go there. Oh, okay. Yes, it's very. She said it's very typical uh, Roman Catholic. 
God, yeah, that's that's massive. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. And which is funny, I was kind of stunned when they said that church, his home, like their the house, it's it, I mean, it's an impressive house, yes. but it's quite smaller compared to these buildings. Yeah. And then the last one, also quite large, the courthouse, which we just talked about during our episode on the smiling widow, yes. Jesse Costello, and her trial and most of the trials during the early twentieth century would have taken place inside that courthouse. So So that that fantastic structure, which again we'd hope to get in, but there was uh, some issues with the company who's in charge of uh, uh remodeling that's not the right word it's been mothballed so we're looking the, the city's looking to use it as a as a space and there's uh, some different companies that are contracting that out but hopefully uh, we'll get in one day so but yeah it was really cool to learn that that architect or that designer mm-hmm. created that house and those other buildings that we pass by every day i don't think i ever had an appreciation for architects until samuel mcintyre so <laughs> thank you for that another fun fact the guy who designed the andrew safford house the one with the huge three-story columns that was designed by a protege of samuel mcintyre yes. so i was just tickled by that but uh, I, I think that that house is probably my favorite fantastically fantastically that's that's the right word uh decorated which is is to be fair because uh is decorated by uh micah hapworth design so she lives there and she is an interior designer so you could you could see that you're like i mean if you could if you've seen pictures of the mason suite that airbnb i think it's safe to say like we were in for some uh spectacular decor there yeah that was that was really nice and then the, the andrew stratford house as well Definitely top of the list. Uh, that is one of the structures, uh, buildings owned by the Peabody Essex Museum. And uh, as we've talked about several times, they own nearly two dozen historic buildings in town. Uh, unfortunately, More than that, actually. the resources required to staff and maintain all of those uh, wonderful architectural uh, uh, historical resources is just immense. So unfortunately, uh, oftentimes they are closed to the public. Um, and they also specifically because they house furniture and curated um, pieces that some are original to the home. Uh, some have been there for centuries and it is, it's just. It, it's a lot of work to get these places up and running with like proper climate control yeah. and just staffing for visitor services. Yeah. And again, you said they've got several dozen homes. Yeah. I hope we'll be able to get into some other ones in the future. Yeah. Thank you. A big thank you to the PEM for partnering up with Historic Salem on this one and letting us get into one of those properties. Maybe if we're lucky, we'll get into the uh, gar- house. Yeah, the Gardner <laughs> Pingree house next. Hmm. Open one up for every festive time. A different one for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Salem's so sweet. Open up one of the buildings and tell Salem love stories in it. I'll tell Salem love stories in it. Let me inside. So, a, a murder love story. Yes. The, everyone sit on the bed. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't. I want to know if it's if that if the bed in there is the same. The bed. Bed. I, I don't know. People slept in it after his death, so I yeah, don't think yeah. they would have kept it. But you never know. Right. But anywho, it was a great weekend. We've got more markets coming up, more festivities to look forward to. So Salem's not uh, quieting down yet. No, it was it was a lot of fun. And again, thank you to uh, Historic Salem Incorporated or Inc. Uh, for for producing this every year. It's a it's a really special event in in town. And mark your calendars for next December. If you want to go, because they do it every single yep, year, yep. and you never know what the next neighborhood's going to be. So 
we will we will find out in November. <laughs> <laughs> Eleven months. So mark your calendars. Shall we sneak in some quick Patreon shout-outs? Yeah, absolutely. Again, big thank you to our Patreon subscribers. First on today's list, we have Jenny Cooper. Ah, thank you, Jenny Cooper. From Canada. Got a couple of Canadians signing up recently. Yeah, thank you guys. And a big thank you to Kara. Kara. Or Kara. Or Kara. I hope one of those two is right. You can say Kara, I'll say Kara. Also, Lauren Bryan reached out to us, and it is pronounced Brian, not Brain, Jeffrey. Uh, okay, so okay. <laughs> Learned something new today. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> and last but not least, we have Clint. Clint. Thank you, Clint. Thank you. But let's get back to 1692. So if you're just jumping into this episode, uh, kind of recommend uh, jumping back to Putnam's part one uh, so you can get caught up to speed on the uh, notorious. <laughs> on more of their backstory, we covered a little bit more of their lead up to mm-hmm. the witch trials, mm-hmm. uh, some of their family dynamics, some of the social and religious dynamics in Salem Village. Another good thing to do if you are just jumping in, maybe go back and do a refresher of our intro to 1692. If you're uh, you're not a regular for the witch trial episodes, it might yeah. be a good time to refresh. I Sometimes when I'm researching, I'm like, man, I think I need a refresher, but <laughs> <laughs> do I want to go back and listen to us? I don't know. So where do we leave them, Jeffrey? Trial time. Trial time. Yeah. Or accu- accusation time, I, I guess. Um, accusation time. So again, as we tend to, to do these, when it comes to these individuals, we'll give you a, a good history prior to and then their involvement in uh, the, the witch trials. So we talked about, again, their religious understanding, their property ownership or land ownerships, their uh, family connections, and all of that leading up to uh, what happens. So remember, uh, we're dealing with the Putnam family. They live in Salem Village, which is now modern-day Danvers. It is slightly removed from the uh, port city that is Salem Town. Their homestead was about seven miles away from what would have been the Salem Meeting House. Yep. Some of the issues that we're facing uh, with Salem Village is their want of independence from Salem Town their want of a physical church to uh, worship in, and their local contention on who should be the minister uh, in that location. And that's led up to Reverend Paris now holding the job. And we find several factions within the scope of Salem Village. Some are pro-Reverend Paris, some are anti-Reverend Paris. And uh, we find that those understandings fall along the lines of accused and accusers. Putnam's, of course, are pro-Paris and accusers. Big, big time accusers. Yeah. <laughs> and they themselves, the Putnam family, they're dealing with their own set of issues within their family context. Mm-hmm. So remember the core Putnams, we have Thomas Putnam Jr., his wife, Anne Putnam, and Anne Putnam Jr. Yes. So we'll try to keep that Anne Putnam Sr. and Putnam Jr. distinction, just as we did with the last episode. Thomas Putnam Jr., Thomas Putnam Sr. It gets really, they all name each other after each other. Like it's just, it gets so confusing. So in the uh, in the Crucible, uh, they change Anne Putnam's name to Ruth. Do, do they really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anne, sorry. <laughs> I'm already getting confused. Anne Putnam Jr. is Ruth. Are you serious? Yeah. Be- I didn't realize that yeah to 
to because, make that distinction. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had, sorry to side note, but I had a group of about 30 high schoolers this past weekend. They were just reading The Crucible. And so the first thing I said to start the entire tour, hey guys, just just a heads up, there was no love affair between Abigail Williams and John Proctor. And the collective moan and groan of disappointment was amazing. They're like, no. One of my favorite things to do is when you get a bunch of high, is to tell them because they're all nor- they normally come here in a relation to the crucible. Yeah. And so they're all on that. I'm like, sorry guys, Abigail. And then you tell them Abigail Williams is 11. Uh, yep. And they're all like, Ew. what? Yeah. And, ah. and John Proctor is 60. It's He's no, not ah. this sexy looking, like strapping <laughs> young Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. Although I'm sure John Proctor was a good looking guy. Uh, he was not Daniel Day Lewis. And, and, Putnam, or sorry, Abigail Williams was 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a fun little breaking of the spirits. But anyways, so yeah, the names are going to get a little little jumbled up, but we're going to try our best once again. So in keeping them distinct, we'll, we'll probably always say Ann Putnam Jr. Yes. I, I don't... I think we always have to. Yeah, yeah. Ann Putnam, if we say Ann Putnam and we don't put senior or junior, it is likely. It is It is senior. It is Thomas Putnam's wife. Yeah. And yeah. one of the only afflicted adults. Yes. So take yeah. note of that. But yeah, their family, they're going through some hard times. And senior is pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been popping out children nonstop. She had just lost a child in 89, 1689, a couple years prior to the trials. And Thomas... Putnam Jr. We talked a little bit about his issues with his family inheritance leading up to the trials. And I do think that that created a sore spot in his life and kind of made him a little bit spiteful. So again, getting back to last week, we have Thomas Putnam Jr. (laughs) Uh, Is the uh, eldest of the Putnam families. Uh, His mother dies. His father remarries. They have one child. Joseph, when his father or their father dies, Joseph is given the significant portion of the Putnam estate. And he's he's the youngest by leaps and bounds. He's, he's not even he's, an adult. He's 16. 16. The half-brother. Uh, uh, I can't. <laughs> so I mean, if this was like English royalty, wars have been fought over less. Yeah. And uh, Thomas Putnam Jr., has had some economic issues of his own. Uh, they're fine financially, uh, but he's also looking within his future and, and within uh, what's going to be coming down the pipeline for his life and his economic resources is to have those hundreds of acres. And if if you're building up any sort of, of, of business or, or wealth or, or family And he was probably expecting to get it. And and then all of a sudden, whoop, gone. That, that, I, I think that's, that's something that's going to piss most people off. So as much as I felt bad for him in our part one, after doing research for part two, I felt a little less bad because I realized that shortly before Thomas Putnam Sr. wrote that will mm-hmm. and died, he also formally deeded the land that Thomas Putnam Jr. and his family had been living on, had been using for decades decades at this point he formally deeded that over to him as well as other parcels of land that he was using yeah so like i can see and and then he also did the same thing for his brother yeah so like i think what thomas putnam senior was doing in this case it's like okay i'm giving 
my eldest this chunk of land that he's been living on. I'm giving my other son this chunk of land he's been living on. And I have my wife and my son here, and he'll receive this chunk. I understand why Thomas Putnam's angry, but at the same time, he it's not like he got he went away empty-handed. No, but there's a difference between 50 acres and 800 acres. But he got a significant, like he was formally deeded a significant yeah, yeah, portion. I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel a little less bad for him. Although, to add to that, I also read that Ann Putnam Sr., was in a way cheated out of any inheritance from her family too. Mm-hmm. So her folks, they had amassed quite a large uh, fortune. They had they had their own island. <laughs> um, it was called Car Island, and because her maiden name is Car, but she had been sent away as a child to live with her uncle and aunt. She was raised by them as her brothers were kind of kept to help with the family business. When their father died. The family business and all that land and the rights to it stayed with the mother, the wife, and those sons. The daughters got pretty much nothing. So I can understand, again, why they were feeling a bit cheated. Do I feel a little less bad for Thomas Putnam? Yes. But I'm sure he was banking on that for for years. Yeah, yeah. And especially when you have... 20, 30 kids. 20, 30. They had 10, Jeffrey, 10. (laughs) (laughs) So we're diving into winter 1692, which I kind of love about the trials because we get to do the cycle again every year. Like every year we get to do this. We could talk about the trials almost like the anniversary of them happening again. So right around this time is when those girls would have been experiencing their first afflictions. Those start with Abigail Williams, Betty Paris, living in the home of Reverend Samuel Paris. They're about a mile and a half away from the Putnam household. The Putnams would have had to pass the Paris household on their way to church. And it is Ann Putnam Jr., who is the first to jump in after those two initial girls. And I think I may have said that she was 13 in the last episode. Want to correct that? She's actually 12. 12 years old, just like Abigail Williams. So young. Like, so young. You also have to uh, remember that they were friends. Yeah, the Putnams and the Parises would have been yeah. around each other. Yeah. I, I can't speak to, you know, their actual level of, of friendship, but the girls would have known each other. They would have associated with, with each other uh, in whatever form that Puritan children could play. <laughs> they would have played together, uh, which wasn't play. But Ring around the rosy, pocket full of... Po- oh, and there's no singing. You can't yeah, sing. Yeah, so, <laughs> but they, they would have been associated with each other. These children were not strangers to each other, which definitely leads on from this, especially since Reverend Paris and Thomas Putnam were friends or associates as well. So their children would have spent time together. So the witch cake, we talked about the witch cake in quite a few episodes that is baked by Tichaba and John Indian upon the instruction of their neighbor, Mary Sibley. That happens on a Thursday. Folks started gathering at the Putnam and Paris households to discuss the afflictions because it wasn't just uh, Betty and Abigail. 
Ann Jr. had joined in, and I believe Elizabeth Hubbard was mm-hmm. also acting afflicted at that point as well. She is the niece of Dr. Griggs. Yes. William Griggs, the the guy who diagnosed Betty Paris as being bewitched in the first place. So these, these first four girls are very in close proximity both geographically but relation like socially their parents know each other they're always talking to each other very interconnected and i can really see how those lines connect when you have uh, betty and abigail are suffering these afflictions and as soon as it becomes public uh of course we have dr griggs who is the one who examines them and then his niece is afflicted so i'm sure that conversation And again, I don't know for certain, but if he goes home, if he talks to someone in the family, these girls are being afflicted. And Thomas Putnam learns of this as well. And he goes home and he has that conversation. The two girls who are probably as closely connected as you could have gotten to the afflicted girls are the next two to be afflicted. And remember, these behaviors had been going on for the better part of two months at this point. So the conversations had been had probably multiple times. These girls are well aware of the behaviors of their, their friends and neighbors. So the witch cake happens on a Thursday. That following Monday is when we see our first formal complaints made. And I think this is important to note. As much as we like to put blame on the girls, as much as we like to make fun of Ann Putnam Jr., it is not Ann Putnam Jr. that got on a horse and, I don't know if they were on horses, but went to Salem Town to see the magistrates and file the formal complaint. That was Ann Putnam Jr.'s father, Thomas Putnam, along with his brother Edward, his neighbor Joseph Hutchinson, and Rebecca Nurse's son-in-law. They went to the magistrates to accuse Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tichaba of sundry acts of witchcraft. And it begins. Or, sure. (laughs) Now those afflictions, we all know, carry from the household into the courtroom Mm -hmm. and we are seeing the numbers of those girls grow as well so it's not just ann putnam jr her mother joins in ann putnam senior and we've got a third afflicted person in the putnam household miss mercy lewis so you might remember mercy lewis uh we talked about her i would say quite extensively especially in the george burroughs with with george burroughs episode she's 17 uh, so it, it, what's also interesting when it comes to Mercy Lewis is she is of legal accusing age. So no one needs to a- accuse for her. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that age was 16. I believe so. Yes. So she is, uh, what's also interesting is her involvement and of legal age ho- holds weight as well. And she lives with the Putnams. And at this point, and she is uh, probably, she is also very good friends with um, Ann Putnam Jr. You would think. I mean, they are five years apart. Yeah. And she hasn't been there that long. No, but I I sort of feel, and, and sort, of, sort of reading through some of this, Ann Putnam Jr. is the oldest of seven at this point. Oh, and all her siblings are younger. Are younger. So now you have this older sister role model kind of person right who, who comes in um and that's also where we see some some contention uh within the scope of the accusations and we can very easily 
connect some of those dots. Um, do we do we want to talk about George Burroughs? Yeah, sure. And his ties to Mercy Lewis in particular, and I guess his ties to the Putnams as well. Yeah, exactly. He was a minister of Salem Village. So Mercy Lewis is unique compared to Ann Putnam Jr. and the rest of the Putnam family in the fact that she is a refugee. Yes. I don't think we mentioned Thomas Putnam Jr. did fight in King Philip's War. Mm -hmm. He has been in these battles with the indigenous, so definitely very violent uh, experiences. But all things compares to what Mercy Lewis experienced. She was born in Falmouth, Maine at the age of one, they were attacked. The town was attacked. She lost her grandparents, uh, several uncles and aunts and cousins. The family fled to Casco Bay on the coast of Maine. And this is also where George Burroughs flees. So what's interesting with, with Burroughs is um, when he is the minister here, and we talked about this in the last episode, they're facing issues with the living situation and the payment situation. He's actually... Before the homestead is built, he's actually living with Captain John Putnam Sr. Oh, yeah. We totally forgot to mention that in the last one. <laughs> so, um, and this is... And this so, is before the indigenous attacks. Yeah. That I just mentioned. Yeah. So this is as he's the reverend or the minister here in Salem. What we see there is, unfortunately, uh, one of his wives, his, the wife at the time, uh, passes away uh, in childbirth. So prior to this, as he's living with uh, one of the Putnam family. Uh, I believe it was Thomas Putnam Sr. So it would have been the Thomas Putnam we're talking about today, his father. Captain John Putnam Sr. So oh, never mind. Uncle, ne There's brother. so many Putnams. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, he's living within a Putnam household. I think it's, yeah, it must be an uncle. And we get some rumors uh, of abuse uh, from Reverend Burroughs to his wife. Uh, he was, there's no, uh, 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 there's no arrest, there's no physical evidence of this but he was very stern very strict very short sort of with her uh when they had domestic problems he'd always sort of try to rope in captain putnam be like oh well you know she except we all can see her behavior kind of conversations uh so some people were like well he might have been hurting or abusing her she dies during childbirth he can't afford the uh, burial costs so he takes a loan a personal loan from captain putnam uh, then the contention here reaches a point where he's like, screw you guys, I'm out. He leaves, uh, still with these outstanding debts. Uh, he comes back to Salem two months later and is actually arrested for these outstanding debts. And might we also add, it's the Putnams who had him yes. arrested yes. for not paying the debts of his wife's funeral. Yes. And I think it's settled like within a day or two. So that argument is legally settled. Uh, but there's still obviously some emotional uh, ties there. I can sort of imagine, you know, Captain Putnam being like, I put a roof over the man's head and, da -da 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 -da, and he screws me out of these, this money, perhaps. And then that settled and Burroughs leaves again. And that's the last time he was in Salem until he's arrested. And brought back forcibly. So then he moves up to? Maine. Maine. Now, from what I read, Burroughs wasn't, you know, the Putnams are usually pro- preacher in the context of Salem Village. I don't think they really liked George Burroughs very much, mm -hmm. possibly for some of the reasons you just mentioned. So he is distinct in that regard. He, he is also pro-halfway covenant. 
Yes. So he's a little bit more lenient. He probably would have fit in. He would have been a great, you know, he would have been a great preacher at Salem Town. Very likely. George, he may have survived. (laughs) So he moves up to Maine after he repays his debt. The town gets attacked and he finds himself in Casco Bay at the same time as Mercy Lewis and her parents. They moved south and spent some time in Salem Village seeking refuge. And they decided to move back, which, you know, I, I, I kind of want to ask, like, why? <laughs> maybe they, <laughs> it may be family ties, but they had lost so many family members. You know, why would you risk it again, go back into that frontier territory? Although all of this is pretty much frontier territory at this point. There's got to be, I mean. There's got to be an allure, right? Like, why wouldn't they want to stay in Salem Village? It's, it's that idea of is that 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 human nature of and I'm, I'm i'm lacking the words at the moment but that's why we move westward that's why we explore that's why we learn and grow you know you opportunity opportunity you, you want that that betterment for your family for your future that independence that and perhaps they didn't think that they could find that in salem village and you have a, a massive economic boon up in Maine with the logging companies uh, and, and, and the and, fishing and the fishing and the trade that they saw their future there. They saw the quote unquote land of opportunity, hell or high water. They were, they were going to make a go of it. They were going to seize whatever it was. And we, time and time again, you know, when it comes to those ideas, they oftentimes we have, we have that frontier that they get hit with all these disasters and issues and, and we keep going. Unfortunately though, They will be attacked again, and this is in 1689, so we are just three years before the trials, and Mercy's parents will be killed during that attack. Uh, I've read some, some say before her very eyes, you know, she was hiding in the fireplace when her parents were killed. So definitely carrying a lot of trauma a lot of horror, um, so many horrible experiences with her to Salem Village into that Putnam household. PTSD, I think we've talked about this, especially in our episode on theories of the Salem Witch Trials, how that may have impacted some of these girls who are coming down from frontier territory and may have experienced something similar to Mercy. She's not the only one. And there, I do, I do believe that the girls that, like Mercy... They definitely may have been experiencing, you can probably speak more to this than I can as a, uh, a Marine, but, you know, at a young age to have to do this year after year, she, I, I cannot fathom the nightmares that girl would have dealt with, the trauma, everything. I'm just shaking my head. I don't, I, I literally, it, it, it's on a scale that, very few people could could even understand today. Um, there is there is conflict today, and there are there's tragic horrific conflict today, especially today. Especially uh, today, given given some of the situations around the world, but the conflicts that's happening here, I think it's important to understand the difference in the mechanisms and tools used in those conflicts. Bombs and rifles are very different than knives and fire, I, I think would be the easiest way for me to explain that. Um, the butchery that occurred in the 1600s here 
was inhumane on a nearly unfathomable level to most of us alive today. And to bear witness to that and to survive that and to have no recourse of closure to that. And as a child who has gone through it twice, of course, she probably didn't remember the first one, but would have carried the memories of her family with her. That could happen again, like at any moment that I can't, she's probably waiting in anticipation at all moments of the day. And I also did want to highlight the fact you say that it was some butchery and there was a lot of brutality. It's not just coming from. Oh, no, no, that's, yeah. that's both sides. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that, yeah. That is, I just want to make sure that oh, like no, no, that is well known um, and it is well documented yes. that the brutality, we all know that the settlers, like coloniz- colonization is bad. We all know that. But the stuff that the settlers were doing, same level, like if not worse when it um, comes to the, the butchery. Yeah. Uh, not going to get into details on that. Yeah. We'll just leave it at that. But, but just, I think that is important to note her difference, Mercy Lewis, compared to Ann Putnam Jr. and the yeah. other Putnams in the household. Yeah. The, the, the conflicts that have occurred within the Puritan colonization time frame have been described as the most savage and inhumane conflicts that have happened on this continent. Yep. But up in Maine... I have to say, I was always under the impression that Mercy Lewis was like the ringleader of the girls. Mm -hmm. I don't know how exactly I feel about that now. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. It's not like we can be in the courtroom or in the Putnam household. Perhaps just her status as being a servant. Obviously, she's going to be more of a side character to Ann Putnam Jr. when it comes to her relations with her parents and her parents are the ones that are doing a lot of the, you know, urging her to name names. They're the ones that are going and filing the formal petitions. But at the same time, Mercy Lewis is 17 and Putnam Jr. is 12. Like, I don't know how much, you know, how much influence did Mercy have over Anne? It's hard to say. And did Mercy see Anne's afflictions and be like, oh, shoot, maybe I should jump in. I'm kind of a newcomer in this this house. You know, perhaps it would be best for me to just partake. Or it was full-blown, you know, she really believed in it because of her traumatic past. It's so hard to say. So I, I think that traumatic past really lends itself to the uh, psychological break that these girls are experiencing. So, and I, I, I sort of make this important distinction on tour in the beginning. So at this point within the scope of the trials, we are 100% seeing a psychological break of these children, given the conditions they lived in, the families they lived in, uh, they are, are suffering and they, they crack and they have physical symptoms of that psychological break. As we get further into the summer, I think that has perhaps not resolved itself. Uh, But now these girls have learned that these behaviors give them attention opportunity. And so I think there's a very distinct difference between what happens initially and what happens later. And so now we are in that initial position where we have someone like Abigail Williams, who has suffered uh, as much as, as Mercy Lewis, And I think what we see is this trauma building and building and no outlet, no resolution to it. And then all of a sudden there is that outlet and many of the individuals who are suffering similarly see that 
and they break as well. I would agree. I always like to tell folks on my tour because everyone wants like an easy explanation. It's why they, they love reverting to no, er- no, no, don't yep, say it. Ergot poisoning. No. Um, but I do think it's way more complicated than that. And I don't think the cause, the motivations behind mm-hmm. the accusations were the same all the way through. Like the the girls at the beginning, maybe they, they really did believe what was happening and they were terrified, absolutely terrified. And then as things start to mellow out inside their minds and they kind of look around, it's like, oh, shoot. We crossed a line. Someone's in jail. Someone's dead. Multiple people are dead. We can't admit what we did now. I don't know if they even realized. I'd make that argument. You think? That's a bold... uh, I don't think so. Okay. Okay. After... um, Because of Mary Warren's note. You know how Mary Warren... Yeah. yeah, yeah, Perhaps some. She confesses to the afflictions being not real. Yes. But was it this weird going way off topic? Uh, <laughs> did they the, the question comes down to did they have the wherewithal and understanding to differentiate and to then not back off because of that, which I don't think is the case. You think that they were just they were too wrap, wrapped up in it that they could not take themselves out of it. Yes, I don't think they made the conscious decision to continue. I think what's happening. So like if we were in a courtroom right now, it would be second degree murder, not first degree murder or manslaughter. I'm not sure. We're again, we're not true crime. Yeah. People, but yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's there. The intent isn't there necessarily. No, they're, they're looking for the attention, f- their, their actions and what they're doing is gleaning them attention. Um, and I think that's an important thing to understand is that these girls don't get attention. They don't have, uh, um, and also children's brains aren't fully developed. Right. They don't, they well, have Which is a- why today we have a legal statue of what is an adult, what is a child. Yeah. And can you really, you have a, a child who commits a crime. Did they perpetrate that crime? And by child, I mean under 18, knowingly, willfully, and being able to understand and comprehend their actions and the repercussions of their actions. And as a society, we have said that under the age of eight and murder sometimes gets pushed a little lower into early teenage years. But and, and of course, it depends on the conditions of the situation. And this person is going to be tried as an adult. And that oftentimes come with, comes with a significant level of premeditation. Um, but we also live in a community today where as a teenager, uh, if you take a teenage person, they are educated they are literate. They are comprehensive. They are. They have independence. They can. They can work. They can hold jobs. They have freedom. They have uh, independence from, from their household, from their parents. If fourteen, sixteen, you you can drive in in some states. You can, you know, have relationships and understanding and, and a form of independence. So therefore, you are also culpable to your actions. These children had none of that, uh, and so their understanding of the repercussions of their actions, I've always felt would have been very minimal uh, and and how that results. Yeah, I guess you kind of forget that they're, you know, 12. Yeah. Like the first two girls, like... Nine and 11. Nine and 11. I have a lot less sympathy for the adults that jump in yes. and, and accuse with 
ammo that they gather from decades decades. of personal gripes. Yeah, Yeah. that's very different. Very different. But one thing that you notice in a lot of the formal accusations that are made on the behalf of these girls, it's it's formulaic. You described this, I think, in the last episode. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of records to work with. And if you're interested, they will be linked in the show notes. But you'll notice Thomas Putnam was enlisted to help scribe, like to help 120 take down some of these accusations. And it is, yeah, not some, a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And it is the same thing over and over and over again. Dreadful this, this, grievous that. And he they were pinched, choked. It's the same attacks. Yeah, he uses a, a, an algorithm, effectively. Whoa, algorithms back in 1692. <laughs> he, he found the algorithm worked. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, to, to back, circling back to, to Maine and Burroughs, as we got a little bit off, off topic. Oh, there. shit, we got really off topic. <laughs> so, but it, it all plays into to Anne Putnam, to, to the Putnam experience. And to the accusations. Yeah. So Mercy Lewis is under the care of Reverend... Burroughs up in Maine. And it's it's likely for a brief time. Yeah. But she was working as a servant in his household, a ward in his household. It was pretty typical. A young child, especially if they are orphaned, would work in exchange for room and board, mm-hmm. similar to what she then does in the Putnam household. There is speculation based on the accounts that the Putnams had made of his behavior towards his wives or his wife that maybe he was an aggressive man and he was forceful with mercy lewis as well so one it it doesn't take much to imagine if you are this young teenager loses her family loses her parents gets sent off to live in the household of this you know strange man that you hardly know and if he's not the nicest guy that's going to leave an impression. She is one of his main accusers. And she'll claim that he's coming down from Maine to attack her. He also, uh, and this just came to me, so forgive me if I get this incorrect, was sympathetic to the indigenous peoples. Uh, he would attempt to, to meet, pray, and convert them. So as you were saying that out loud, perhaps... And I'm just made this connection in my head, so I'm not. Mm-hmm. This isn't referencing anything. Perhaps she was witness to any Him of that. Being sympathetic to the peoples who had destroyed her life in her mind. In her mind, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the witch trials are complicated. Also, <laughs> I also wonder how often are these names just picked out of a hat because these girls are running out of names and they don't have like how like I know George Burroughs is a very specific situation. Yeah, yeah. The fact that he was a minister in Salem Village, and he's probably the furthest geographically mm-hmm. away who's accused. But I, you can't help but wonder, these girls, you know, they're in a corner. Name, Give us a name. Who's hurting you? Who's hurting you? We always talk about the accused being questioned very harshly, and they ask you the same stuff over and over again. I'm sure in this Putnam household, Thomas Putnam Jr. was doing the same thing to his little daughter. Who's hurting you? Who's hurting you? Tell me a name. Tell me a name. Tell me a name. And then, perhaps during the questioning, 
or afterwards in a conversation maybe with his wife. And again, I'm just making shit up here. He says, man, she didn't know. She couldn't see. Maybe it was Goody Osborne. Maybe, maybe it was it was Goody Corey. And there he's speculating. Maybe it was Goody Nurse. Do you think perhaps it could have, and perhaps the houses are small, the walls are thin. And, and Putnam Sr. is also afflicted. So anything that whenever she's not afflicted, anything that her husband tells her that she's overhearing, she's probably going to work that in. And Putnam Sr., I don't know. It's hard to explain her involvement. I think she's different than the girl's. So I think I think she's jaded uh, uh, by her family and by the Putnam family. I think she is a staunch supporter of her husband. I think she I think she is also pregnant. True. And I don't I hate to sort of say this, but pregnancy hormones, right? So if you take, I mean, I wouldn't say that they make you point fingers at. Innocent no, people, but, but I can imagine that, you know, and who knows if Thomas Putnam was actually a supportive husband. But, I, but she, I doubt that. Pregnancy is difficult. And those pregnancy hormones uh, make people, what's the word I'm looking for? Can throw you off balance. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. They can throw you off balance. And coupled with the winter, with the situation, with the fear. With, with the loss of her child years prior. We now have someone who is uh, facing uh, these issues while pregnant, while terrified. And I think I can very easily see how that plays out. Uh, you said the loss of her child. She also, her sister Sarah dies in 84. Her sister Mary dies in 88. Her brother John dies in 89. That infant dies in 89 and her mother dies in 91. It's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. And she may not have been very close to her mother. She wasn't raised by her, mm-hmm. but still, still. It's a lot. These it's people, lot. again, are facing a lot. And I think some of them end up, the timing and the place is this perfect storm. So I just want to continue with Burroughs for a little bit. So, of course, we have those accusations of Mercy Lewis. We've talked about that. But I just wanted to read something Ann Putnam says about Reverend Burroughs. So I think what we have here is this figure of Reverend Burroughs who's had uh, issue with the Putnam family prior to. He's been living up in Maine. We have that contention with Mercy Lewis. She's now living in the Paris household. Uh, This is a deposition of Anne Putnam Jr. who testifies that on the 5th of May in 1692 at the evening, she saw the apparition of Burroughs who grievously tortured her and urged her to write in his book, which she refused. He then told me that his first two wives would appear to me presently and tell me a great many lies, but I should not believe them. Then immediately appeared to me the form of two women in winding sheets and napkins around their heads, at which I was greatly affrightened, and they turned their faces towards Burroughs and looked, looked very red and angry and told him that he had been a cruel man to them, and their blood did cry for vengeance against him, and also told him that they should be clothed with robes of white in heaven when he should be cast into hell and immediately he vanished away as soon as he was gone the two women turned their faces towards me and looked as pale as white and they told me that Mr. they were Mr. Burroughs's first wives and that he had murdered them and it, it continues on there's like another like four paragraphs this of this Ann Putnam Jr. yes 
And uh, she continues to go on. She mentions as well. Oh, she goes on to talk about he killed, he had bewitched a great many soldiers to death at the eastward when Sir Edmund was there and that he had made Abigail Hobbs a witch. Like the fact that she's talking about like battles, like how is this girl have any uh-huh. knowledge of her father? Exactly. His military um, experiences. Yeah, very much. You can almost like feel the elder Putnam members of the family right. coming so through. In that discussion, you have this 12-year-old who's talking about these situations, the two wives of Reverend Burroughs. And you're like, well, we know that within the family dynamic, the Putnams had seen the death of one of his wife. There was those rumors of abuse within the Putnam household towards of Burroughs towards his wife. And then you have Mercy Lewis, who has also been with Reverend Burroughs, about the death of his other wife. And the 12-year-old's getting all of this information fed to her. Not, I don't think, feeding's the wrong word. She's heard all this information. And now, here we have Burroughs, who's been accused. And they're like, well, what did you know? And she just starts coming out with all the things that she's heard. I also could see, because there's a lot of detail here, I could also see some slight coaching as well from her parents. Again, not blatant, like, say this, say that. Right, right. But... Was it this? Was it that? Very suggestive leading questions like we see from the magistrates in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Remember, 12 years old, very impressionable. You know, you're not going to go against your parents during this time. Yeah, yeah. So along with Reverend Burroughs is another major player that the Putnams are uh, against. This definitely harkens back to our part one, Mm -hmm. those family feuds that Mm -hmm. were going on in Salem Village, the Putnams versus the Porters. So aligned with the Porter family, uh, intertwined with the Porter family is the nurse family. Rebecca Nurse. Even greater so, the town family. Mm -hmm. So remember, it's not just Rebecca Nurse, but it's her her two sisters, Mary Esty and Sarah Cloyce. Again, all three are targeted by Mercy Lewis Ann Putnam Jr. and Ann Putnam Sr. So I did read that some historians like to credit uh, Mercy Lewis with single-handedly making sure that Mary Esty stayed in prison. So Mary Esty was released at one point. And during that release is when, you know, obviously these afflictions are happening pretty consistently But Mercy Lewis was in a severe fit. Uh, The folks around her, the Putnam family, the neighbors, weren't sure if she was going to make it through. The girls paid her a visit. Mary Walcott, Ann Putnam Jr., obviously is living with her at the time, and Abigail Williams. They accuse Mary Esty for these continued afflictions. It is not until she is rearrested that Mercy Lewis stops her afflictions. So they look at her as, you know, if she hadn't continued, yep. M- Mary Esty would have walked free. She was. She was walking free. They had let her out. But then they rearrest her and they kind of seal the deal right there. Now, it was on the day of Mary Esty's first arrest that we actually get a, a letter written by Thomas Putnam to the magistrates, Hathorne and Corwin. A thank you note of sorts. Oh, well. Salem Village, 
this 21st of April, 1692. Much honored. After most humble and hearty thanks presented to your honors for the great care and pains you have already taken for us, for which we are never able to make your recompense, and we beholding continually the tremendous works of divine providence, not only every day, but every hour, thought it our duty to inform your honors of what we conceive you have not heard, which are high and dreadful, of a wheel within a wheel, at which our ears do tingle, humbly craving continually your prayers and help in this distressed case. So praying, Almighty God, continually to prepare you, that you may be terror to evildoers and a praise to them that do well." We remain yours to serve in what we are able, Thomas Putnam. So basically, just give him a big pat on the back. Thank you for helping us out <laughs> and ridding out this evil here in Salem Village. Thanks, guys. I will say one thing that is unique about the town family. We will see an apology mm-hmm. made by Ann Putnam Jr., into that the the end but, end end, but we're gonna wait for the very very end, yeah. since that'll come post trials. So Ann Putnam Senior also holds accusation against Rebecca Nurse. In the Crucible, they very much emphasize this idea that Ann Putnam Senior has lost many many children, mm-hmm. and how she is so angry and bitter towards Rebecca Nurse because she has had so many successful pregnancies Mm -hmm. and she has helped other women with successful pregnancies. At least that's how it's painted in The Crucible. Just remember, she's only lost one child at this point. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that is extremely traumatic, lost a lot of family members as well, but I would not say that that is a motivating factor. No. I think, again, it comes back, so there's a... uh Nurse town slash uh, Putnam family issue. It gets back to the conversation of land. I believe some of their property or some of their land was abutting. Now, property lines are like rock walls at best, if you can. (laughs) So, and I I just want (laughs) to, got to make this easy. There's oftentimes a conversation within the scope of the witch trials of land grabs. That the whole thing was inspired by you accuse someone and you can just take everything. Yes. That is radically untrue. Not accurate at all. Uh, You could perhaps get their property. Property is not land. Property is physical items being cattle, carts, sheep. uh, For your specific losses. So say Thomas Putnam accuses... Rebecca Nurse of bewitching Mm -hmm. livestock and lost a handful of cows because of her, you can then sue the Nurse family and claim. I mean, you wouldn't even have to at this point. You know, she's found guilty. You can take that for your losses. Also, property would have been confiscated to pay off jail fines and then auctioned off. So there's lots of avenues for property being things. Land is not amongst them. That, however, as we've learned several times throughout this conversation, the history of land acu- uh, land acquisition and ownership does not come into play. It absolutely does. Did that make sense? No. I'm kind of, you lost me there. The history of uh, contentious land ownership absolutely comes into play. So like I have this many acres because of this, 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 and this, yes. and they have this many acres yes. and this property because yes. of this, this, this. Multiple decades worth of 
changing hands, marriages, yes. acquisitions because of those marriages, yes. losses. And remember, the nurse family, along with a couple other families like the Porters, they're on the eastern side of Salem Village. So they are... They're a little bit more connected to Salem Town. They've got some commercial interests in the town, and they're diversifying their income compared to the the Putnams. So, land is an issue. Land grab is not a thing. Property acquisition is a possibility. Anyway, so likely, given the issues within the Putnam family and the loss of their land, being both from Thomas Putnam senior and from Anne Putnam senior's family as well, we can see perhaps where their disagreements with the town slash nurse family uh, have come from. But yeah, uh, Anne Putnam also accuses Rebecca Nurse. Uh, that's a big one. Uh, there's a whole whole issue where uh, she's having fits herself, uh, Anne Putnam senior. Uh, there's one time where, um, this is March 23rd, uh, Day Odette Lawson, because, you know, obviously, comes to the uh, Putnam house and, and prays. And when those prayers conclude, Anne Putnam Sr. is attacked by the specter of Rebecca Nurse. Coincidentally or otherwise, it is the next day that Nurse is brought in for questioning. And it's not just Rebecca Nurse. It's not just George Burroughs. They also point the finger at Dorothy Good. Oh, goodness. The, the four-year-old daughter of Sarah Good. So mm-hmm. there was really no limit to the accusations done by the, the girls. In fact, Ann Putnam, Ann Putnam Jr., she pointed a finger. She accused 18 of the 20 people you will see in the Salem Witch Trials Memorial. She's the one who brought the accusation against the four-year-old. Like, And that was early on. Yeah. That was early on. Yeah. Early March, she says that Sarah Good's daughter choked her and tortured her most grievously. And she has several times since tortured me, biting, pinching, choking, tempting me to write in her book. So here's the thing. I, I think this speaks to their devotion and their consciousness of what they're doing they're able to produce bite marks those are bite your arm exactly (laughs) so like the girls had the wherewithal to bite their skin and to show that this young child like they made that conscious decision to put forth evidence now obviously like we're you have to trust that these documents are really telling the story of what happened but I, I do think that there was a bite mark. Those girls made it themselves, and they blamed young Dorothy Good for it. That wasn't their parents. So That I, was I'm, them. I'm going to disagree. What do you, what do you, how do you disagree with that? Okay. Hear me out. Thomas Putnam uh, and any of the interrogators, did they hit you? Did they pinch you? Did they bite you? Show me where they pinched you. Show me where they bit you. Okay, never. Okay, shh. You got me there. It's literally <laughs> like the satanic panic all over right. again. Like they pushed those. I mean, granted, those children were much younger, a little bit younger, but they did push those children towards this abuse. Yes. And then because the kids are getting this attention from their parents in ways and measures that they've never experienced in their lives, they are given um, validity to their concerns and their ideas and their discussions 
would then go and bite themselves or pinch themselves to then appease their parents. And not really understanding the gravity of, of a four-year-old yeah. going to jail. Exactly. I hope you're right. <laughs> I'd like, <laughs> but it's just so hard. Like, I don't like to put all the blame on these young girls, but at the same time, I don't like to take all the blame off of them because I do think some of these, you know, was it, I've crossed a line, I can't go back, I got to give them what they want. I don't know. It's and, hard It's hard to say. And we, we look at today, even what children do to appease their parents, right? And I'm not talking about like harmful negative things, right? But they, the... the Acting out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To get that attention, to get that interest, to be like, they're not paying attention to me. How do I get them to and pay And sometimes attention? kids do do negative things yeah. to well, ab- get that attention. Absolutely. Sometimes adults do negative things to get attention. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anyone else in particular you want to talk about? Uh, perhaps the Corey, specifically Martha. Oh, all right. So again, we sort of see some of the same issues uh, with the Putnam town nurse and Putnam Corey family. March 12th. We have Edward Putnam and your favorite, Mr. Ezekiel Shevers. Oh, Ezekiel. <laughs> Such a good name. I know, I know. Um, they are traveling to the Corey's house uh, to interrogate Martha, but stop at the Putnam's house to outright ask Anne Jr., what is Martha wearing today? And Anne sort of turns around, Anne Jr. turns around. She's sort of like, she has struck me blind. I cannot see. And they they just take that as like, oh, my gosh. We must have a witch amongst us. Of, oh. of course the witch struck down the child who we came to ask. And now we're going in blind. She's already had a malicious hand. And you're like, oh, my God, guys. Guys, come on. Are, are, we, are we serious? And they go to the, the Corey house and, and Martha uh, turns around and she's basically says, ah, I know why you have come. And instead of understanding (laughs) that the community is falling apart, that these accusations are flying left, right, and center. They they think that because they (laughs) she was afflicting Ann Putnam at that time Uh that she knew that they were on their way Uh to see her. Well, isn't that just like <laughs> such a good coincidence there? Well, it I, makes so much sense. Like you guys, sometimes I read these things. I'm like, you guys can't be serious. But they are. But they are. So you just talked a lot about Martha Corey. Yes. Giles Corey. We actually have another letter written by Thomas Putnam. Oh. oh. Yep. About Giles Corey. Did we talk about this in his episode? I think we may have. Okay, okay. Oh, hit me once or the second time. So this is to Judge Samuel Seawall. Last night, my daughter Anne was grievously tormented by witches, threatening that she should be <gasps> pressed to oh, death. Yes, before. Yes. Giles Gorey. But through the goodness of a gracious God, she had at last a little respite. Whereupon. There appeared unto her, she said, a man in a winding sheet who told her that Giles Corey had murdered him by pressing him to death with his feet, but that the devil there appeared unto him and covenanted with him and promised him he should not be hanged. So basically saying that Giles Corey 
murdered someone by pressing with his feet and then the devil made him a pact that he could get away with it. So I think in this letter, he's referencing his... Jacob Goodell. Right. Yes. The the worker, his farmhand. Yeah, who he'd, who he'd killed two decades prior. Yeah. So do you think that Anne actually had this vision? Or do you think that Thomas Putnam just picked up a pen and was like, this sounds like a good... Because I think this f- directly follows. We don't have a date for it. Uh-huh. It's printed in Cotton Mather's Wonders of the Invisible World. So it's kind of like a, a, it's a, a train of documents, secondhand, transcribed. So we don't have a date for it, but it sounds like it's directly following Giles Corey's pressing. Uh, before. You think he wrote this before the pressing? I'm, if memory serves, fairly certain that would make him like clairvoyant. I, I I think, okay, hold on. I'd have to go back and double check. I think the sentence or the the form of torture had already been decided, and then Anne has this fit and vision. Uh huh. And then he gets pressed. And where does the letter fall? The the before. Before the pressing. Yeah. Okay. So it's decided that he's going to be pressed. Anne has this vision, and Thomas writes about it, and then he is pressed. So you're looking at it being like, oh, you're going to be death by electrocution, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, I had a nightmare that he came and electrocuted me. And you're like... And so here's Thomas Putnam just kind of like verifying, like yeah. urging them this is yeah. the right path to take because he did it to someone else. Don't forget, Giles Corey is a murderer himself, yep. and he got away with it. Yep, clearly with the help of the devil. It's definitely safe to say that Thomas Putnam may have kind of pushed them towards the pressing. Yeah, I would, I would hazard that that's a possibility. But What I find kind of funny is when you look through all of these accused, you don't really see him. Like, you know how at the top of the document you see so-and-so versus so-and-so. Yes. Like the accuser versus the accused. Mm -hmm. He is very seldom, if ever, in the accusers. Like, I don't know if he ever gave any testimony other than like through Someone else. I'm not sure. Uh, but he does write all of them. Right. So it is those person, it is their claims in his hand. Probably a little filtered through mm-hmm. his perspective as well. His maybe, algorithm. <laughs> maybe a little embellishment here yeah. and there. Who yeah. knows? But yeah, it is interesting to note that as much as he was an accuser, he didn't, I guess he didn't really file a lot of formal accusations. Although he is listed, I will say he is listed as like a witness yes. on a lot of those yeah. accusations. So like for the girls, I think technically. What did he witness? And did and would you consider that an accusation? Like he is technically filing that accusation on their behalf. So yeah. I guess you could look at it that way. But anyway, one, one more one more crazy to, to round it out. Sure. <laughs> uh so Anne Jr., so we're going to, a quick bit on Martha Carrier, the the, the queen of hell, uh, up in Andover. Because we can't talk about the king of hell without talking about the queen right, of right. hell. We, we're, she's coming up this year. Don't don't <laughs> worry for, for all of you who are, are chomping out a bit. So there's actually more people accused in Andover uh, than there is in, in Salem. 
it sort of comes a little later, but when they when Andover gets sort of roped in, uh, we we see all these things flare up again. These accusations flare up. And for and, those who don't know, Andover's a couple towns northwest of us. Yeah, maybe a twenty minute half hour drive. Yeah. yeah, which makes sense because Salem Village is in the middle of, I mean, yes. it's it's nearing the middle of Andover and Salem Town. And also, if you look at some of these old maps, you posted that old map to our Instagram. I think so. The I, Maybe the road, there's like a road, an old road that I think you can still <laughs> drive on yeah, today. Yeah, but, but it was like. That goes straight to Andover. Like Andover abutted Salem Village or Salem. Close. Yeah, maybe. And then Middleton was part of Old Salem Village and broke off and became yeah, its own yeah, thing, yeah. which I think Middleton's directly between Salem and Andover. Yeah. It's technically, remember, the middle. middle. Middleton. <laughs> we talk about so many things, it's hard to keep track. Okay, okay, sorry, but sorry. Yeah. So Andover. So Martha Carrier, yep. she's accused. She is living in Andover at the time. Um, and Ann Jr. claims to have been struck by a pin because, again, we got these pins and pinchings, and that she's killed 13 people in Andover, right? So... Uh, fine, all of that's great. It's not. But we have a count here of Martha Kerr turning around and saying, it is a shameful thing that you should mind these folks that are out of their wits. She is just being blunt right there, <laughs> which I get it. Especially if you're living a couple towns over, you're like, the Salem people have gone crazy. Like, I don't want to get roped into that. And then somehow these young teenagers are pointing the finger at you miles and miles away. I'd be pissed too. You're like, what are you doing? Literally, she says, what are you guys doing? Listen, these idiots. But, she was right. And yeah. that doesn't do her any good either. No, no. She has, I believe, Martha Carrier... Her family has the largest amount, percentage-wise, of accusations. It's something like 11% of all accusations came from Martha Carrier's family. That's what happens when you survive a plague. Smallpox. Whatever. Which we'll get to. <laughs> Just not now. We don't have time. Andover episode. Yeah. So um, that's just about that for the trial segment. The trials wrap up. Uh, things sort of settle down back in Salem Town, Salem Village. Uh, we have that Paris contention. He eventually sort of bounces out of here. Yeah, about three years after the trials yeah. end. Things, I think, you know, people are dead. Yeah. Lives have been ruined. Wealth has been shuffled around. And if there were family feuds before, there was definitely some anger still hanging around imagine living in a small town you still have to see those people every day you have to go to church with them every day sit in pews next to them every day so yes paris won't see a lot of uh a lot of support after these trials and he will leave but the putnams do not but soon after five years after both of ann jr's parents so thomas jr and ann senior both die within a, a short time frame Two weeks of each other yeah. from some unknown illness. So it could be anything during that time. But yeah, that and they're leaving behind 10 children. Uh, yeah. So now. How old was Anne at that time? 19. 19. Left to care for nine children, nine siblings between the ages of three and 18. Do you think she saw that as karma? You know, I mean, they are living in a world where. Everything, and they probably didn't call it karma, but they blame right, right. everything on the devil or God. And she knows, we'll talk about this in a bit, 
she's got it. She knows what she did and what her family did wasn't right. And I, you can't help but wonder, a couple years later, both her parents die very abruptly, very young. Her mom was 36. Her father was uh, 46. So I, I wonder. That is punishment, God punishing her or them for what she did. Yeah, I can see that as a, that's a very solid, well, not solid train of thought. You have a solid train of thought. That would <laughs> not have been a solid train of thought. Yeah, no, that's uh, very possible. And perhaps that played into her guilt when she makes her formal apology a few years later. Yeah, so this is one of the weird things, and and I'm sure you get asked the same thing, is what happened to all the girls afterwards. All the time. People ask me that after, like, the second stop. I'm like, dude, (laughs) simmer down. Spoiler alert. Like, you got to wait till the end. We'll cover all of our bases. But I'm not going to tell you what happens to them. We got to go through the whole thing. But... 95% 95% of the time is nothing. Yeah. Except, not except, there's a few other exceptions, but except for Ann Putnam Jr., which is, she was an outlier during, and she becomes an outlier in a, a, a complete 180 after. She becomes, or applies for, and becomes a full member of the church. Now, remember, we had that discussion, I think, in part one, to become a full member, you had to go through certain religious sacraments, I think. Is that the word that we were trying to pinpoint? Sure. One of these tasks that you have to fulfill is a public confession of your sins. And one of those sins she confesses to is contributing to the death of these innocent people. Now, we're going to read that full apology. Uh, so... I'm fairly certain, it, does does she write it? No, this is transcribed. I don't think, I think she would have signed it. Yeah, if yeah. you look at the bottom, it's signed. She signs this, it. So it says, this conf- it was signed by her. This confession was read before the congregation together with her relations. So I'm assuming um, her I don't siblings? Know. Maybe. Uncles are still alive. Mm-hmm. August 25th, 1706. So it is read by the current pastor of the Salem Village Church, Joseph Green. I desire to be humbled before God for that sad and humbling providence that befell my father's family in the year about 92, that I, then being in my childhood, should be such a providence of God, be made an instrument for the accusing of several persons of a grievous crime, whereby their lives were taken away from them, whom now I have just grounds and good reason to believe they were innocent persons. Remember, this has come in 1693 to 17, 13 years after the trials ended. And that it was a great delusion of Satan that deceived me in that sad time, whereby I justly fear I have been instrumental with others, though ignorantly and unwittingly, to bring upon myself and this land the guilt of innocent blood. Though what was said or done by me against any person, I can truly and uprightly say before God and man, I did it not out of anger, malice, or ill will to any person, for I had no such thing against one of them. But what I did was ignorantly being deluded 
by Satan. And particularly, I know, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, yeah. but she's blaming it all on the devil. And particularly, as I was a chief instrument of accusing of good wife nurse and her two sisters, I desire to lie in the dust and to be humbled for it, in that I was a cause with others of so sad a calamity to them and their families, for which cause I desire to lie in the dust and earnestly beg forgiveness of God and from all those unto whom I have given just cause of sorrow and offense whose relations were taken away or accused. I don't I don't see an I'm sorry. Oh my god, you literally read my mind. (laughs) You just read my mind. I was just I was like, I don't think she said sorry once. And maybe maybe that's not what they said back then. I know. I don't know. But like that is a very um, gaslighting there. Yeah, just a bit there. And again, she blames the whole thing on the devil. I was deluded by Satan. I was made an instrument of Satan. I kind of wish she would have said I was made an instrument of my parents, but I doubt that was going to, I mean. Right. So I, I think when you when you look at this body of evidence, they don't understand the psychology behind everything that's going on and the trauma and the PTSD and the nightmares and all these other things, right? And the hunger and the fear. And so, and the control and the oppression. But they believe this is again God's kingdom. They believe the devil has tried to take it, and the tone has shifted from there were actual witches to the devil was trying to have us kill and turn on each other. Oh my gosh, my guy, this is <laughs> the plot to Salem the TV show. <laughs> I know you stopped watching. You just kind of gave up on it with me. But uh, anyway, I think we only made it through half the season one. Yeah, yeah. But they, that is that is the plot. I mean, yes, there are real witches in this, this television show. It's really good, guys. If you haven't watched it, it's really entertaining. There is no real devil in Salem 1692, but in this one, there is. And the whole goal is to get people to turn on each other and spill innocent blood. Mm-hmm. Mary Sibley's the orchestrator behind it all. It, and it works. People do it. And that's exactly what actually happened back yeah. in 1692. These people turned on each other. And she is acknowledging that she was a significant part of that. The devil made me do it. Yeah. <laughs> But it's not her fault. It's his. Accountability for your own actions, my friends. So perhaps we call it an apology, but not really. Mm, As best as a religious extremist can come up with an apology. I guess so. But karma's going to get her once again. Yeah. So did you notice she is the same age as her mother when she dies? I had seen that, yeah. 36. Yeah. 36. And she was the same age as her mother was when she became a member of the church. Ah, interesting. But yes, she dies at the age of 36 in 1716. Unmarried. Yeah. I don't know if she ever had, she could have had an illegitimate child. I think as far as we know that, I don't think we have any records of, of her having any children. I mean, she had enough, at the age of 19, right. she's got she 10 was kids caring, to deal with. Yeah, she was caring for them. So after all this, how do we uh, how do we feel about the Putnams? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, it's complicated, right? Like, I think it helps explain a lot of the initial 
stirrings yeah. that led up to. We always talk about how there's so many factors to the trials, mm. but I think the Putnams, you could put that right up there with, you know, some of the major causes. Yeah. If they hadn't... Uh, Joseph Putnam, if he wasn't in... He's, he, like you said, he's that Jenga piece, right? Yep. If, if Thomas Putnam had gotten the land that he'd wanted... Maybe he wouldn't have been so bitter and yeah. wouldn't have urged his child and his wife to start pushing accusations. Mm-hmm. And even even at that point, maybe he would have been a little more anti-Paris. Yeah. Who knows? He was definitely not good at keeping things chill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, 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 it seems like he always had some type of conflict going on with some family in town always very partial there's always sides to everything and this might have been he may have looked at this as a way to level with some people get revenge get back at some folks absolutely let go of some of his anger yeah oh thomas putnam jr ah the putnams i am putnam jr and Aunt Putnam Sr. Well, there you have it, folks. That wraps up the Putnam problem. All right, Jeffrey. Before we wrap up, I did say at the beginning of part one that I was going to try to find some descendant stories. Yeah. So I got one for you. This is coming from Renee. This is coming back from August 15th. So, Renee, I hope you are still listening. <laughs> So it says, good morning. It talks a little bit about visiting Salem and taking tours. It says, after doing many research projects, sometimes I have time to research my own family tree. And around this time last year, I discovered a ninth great grandmother of mine who had a pretty conspicuous date of death, July 19th, 1692. Well, that would... uh... What a cool experience. Like you just stumble on someone's name and you see the death date and you're like oh we'll shoot <laughs> if you know you know if you know you know sarah averill wilds so sarah wilds we haven't talked about her yet she is an interesting person and i consider her to be a badass with her premarital fornication and the silk scarf scandal uh, so so i'm just gonna pause you real quick if you remember back uh bridget bishop uh-huh is oftentimes confused with Sarah Wilds. I thought she was oftentimes confused with confused with Sarah Bishop. Who is now I'm confused. You know what? Never mind. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Because Sarah Wilds was Sarah was Sarah Bishop. No, I think Sarah Wilds' daughter becomes Sarah Bishop. I don't know. Okay, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. There oh, you go. My head's already starting to hurt. <laughs> I, but she she goes on to clarify, a silk scarf will be coming with me to Salem this year in her honor. So we're going to have to dip into Sarah Wilds here. After much, much research, I was able to confirm the direct line, and I am now working on my documentation to join the Associated Daughters of Early American Witches, which that's really cool. I have various others. The town line is a direct line for me. So Rebecca Nurse, Sarah Cloyce, and Mary Esty are my great, however many times, aunts. I have a direct descendancy to William Hathorne, my ninth great-grandfather, and Nathaniel Hawthorne is my fifth grade. So William Hawthorne, Hathorne, that's the guy we talked about in part one, mm-hmm. who originally got up, got some of that land in Salem Village, and the Putnams then yes. settled. 
also Henry Herrick, a juror of the court of Oyer and Terminer, Rebecca Blake Ames, accused in 1693, and the Porters, Joseph Putnam, brother of the infamous Thomas Putnam, married Elizabeth Porter. Elizabeth is the offspring of Israel Porter and Elizabeth Hathorne. She is my first cousin, 11 times removed. In your recent podcast, Review of Mass Hysteria, you mention the Kirstie Alley movie of the Salem Witch Trials. It's on Amazon Prime right now. In it, there is a scene where the elder Thomas Putnam is upset at the marriage and says a porter will never marry a Putnam. I love to learn and chat about Salem, and I love your podcast. But one thing you mentioned in your familiars episodes drives me nuts to this day. Oh, my gosh. Oh, shoot. Oh, we're settling it right here. A tersel is a bird, specifically a male falcon, to be exact. So if the spelling was correct in the court documents, a tersel is, in fact, not just a car made by Toyota. It is an English term that cites the belief that every third egg was male and Giles Corey was suckling two male falcons, not turtles. There we have it. Again, really enjoying the podcast. Looking forward to visiting in October. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Renee. So, yeah, tied to the Porter family. Well, a porter will marry a Putnam. I hope she uh, listens uh, to this episode and and gets to hear hear that at the end. We hope you guys enjoyed this little return to the Salem Witch Trials. It's been so long. I think we really need to get it out of our system. So (laughs) thanks for bearing with us on all the tangents that we went on for these episodes, this one in particular. It It was nice to be back. For us, anyway. And who knows who we'll be covering this year. Dun, 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 dun. Maybe some judges. Ooh. Maybe some more victims. More accused jurors. Ooh. Got all sorts. If anyone has any suggestions, we'd love to hear it. Let us know. But till then, thanks for listening. See you later. (laughs) 